from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Uh, today on the show, the CIA plotted to assassinate WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Can you believe it? We're going to be talking all about it. And farm workers protest Newsom's anti-farm worker policies in front of the governor's favorite French restaurant. All that and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Well, Yahoo News reported over the weekend, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. In 2017, as Julian Assange began his fifth year holed up in Ecuador's embassy in London, the CIA plotted to kidnap the WikiLeaks founder, spurring heated debate among Trump administration officials over the legality and practicality of such an operation. Some senior officials inside the CIA and the Trump administration even discussed killing Assange, going so far as to request sketches or options for how to assassinate him. Discussions over kidnapping or killing Assange occurred at the highest levels of the Trump administration, said a former senior counterintelligence official. There seemed to be no boundaries. Joining us to talk about this are two folks who follow this case very closely. First, we're joined by Kevin Costoli. He's managing editor at Shadowproof, uh, and he has been on this case and on the Assange uh, story for uh, from the get-go. Uh, welcome back, Kevin Costoli, Flashpoints. Thank you. Good to talk to you. <laughs> Good to have you with us, excuse me. And uh, also joining us is a Bay Area activist and uh, writer, Rick Sterling. He's also been working a lot on organizing in support of uh, Julian Assange. Uh, welcome, Rick Sterling. Yeah. Hi, Dennis. Good to be here. Good to have you. Uh, Kevin, will you uh, outline this story as best as, am I exaggerating when I say that they were seriously considering kidnapping, rendition, murdering him? Nope, not at all. Um, that's the stunning, specific detail that we have. Uh, so we've known for some time that the CIA had a war on WikiLeaks. We've known about the surveillance. We knew that this undercover global, a private security company in Spain, was handling security at the Ecuador embassy, and the CIA came up with an arrangement so that they could have access to round-the-clock audio and video footage. They'd have audio recordings and video footage of Assange while he was inside the embassy. They'd get meetings with his legal team. They'd get to see that he was... Um, their journalists were visiting, the guests, etc. We knew all about that. But what we find from this story is that at the highest level, there were conversations about assassinating Julian Assange. There were sketches of plans. There were sketches of plans to kill Julian Assange, and there were conversations about kidnapping Julian Assange and even putting him on a rendition flight because CIA Director Mike Pompeo was obsessed with Julian Assange and became obsessed when... A batch of files were published by WikiLeaks called the Vault 7 material. Now, these it's okay if people don't have any idea what these are because they receive very, very little coverage, especially in the mainstream media. And 
these files uh, were not the hacking tools themselves, but they exposed that the CIA has these capabilities for offensive cyber warfare and that they can plant malware, they could attack your uh, encrypted messaging apps. Uh, they were Think of the Snowden revelations and things we learned about the NSA. We learned that the CIA had uh, tools like that they could deploy against targets. So Pompeo, embarrassed, ashamed, doesn't want to face Donald Trump and admit that these files are splashed all over the Internet and decides that he wants to seek revenge on Assange and WikiLeaks. And uh, how far did they get with what, what do we understand about how far they got uh, uh, in terms of implementing moving towards they certainly Assange certainly uh, has suffered a great deal and continues to be under deep arrest well so we should presume that they were able to do a lot as far as targeting people who were known to the CIA as WikiLeaks staff members or people they deem to be associates of WikiLeaks. It talks about things they could do to target people for disruption. And uh, they were capable or allowed to, because they designated WikiLeaks as a hostile entity. That's a key part of the story, is that the CIA went and redefined WikiLeaks. It's no longer a media organization to the CIA. They're going to treat it as a hostile entity so that they can have the legal authority to attack WikiLeaks' digital infrastructure. They can try and disrupt communications among people in WikiLeaks, or I presume they could you know, do something to the WikiLeaks website as well. They want to provoke internal disputes among staff and people affiliated with WikiLeaks. They, by planting damaging information, that would be something they're not allowed to do. And they would like to steal WikiLeaks staff members and associates electronic devices they want to be able to hack into those devices from afar and they got the authority to do so i believe that kind of activity was truly going on uh they never obviously they never got to the point of kidnapping julian assange um even though julian assange will probably tell you if he's ever free that he saw some suspicious characters and there were things that were done that you know he was like, well, I'm never going to, like, I've, I've heard that there are people that showed up a few times and were like, why don't you come with me? And he was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. Um, but we know that also, like, UC Global talked about uh, leaving the door open and potentially having the British authorities come in and take him from the embassy, something that never happened. Um, so, obviously, he was never put on a rendition flight, and he's still alive, so he was never assassinated. And it doesn't look like any plot to assassinate him ever really came forward. And that's because, if you were to believe the article, there was pushback from Trump administration officials, as well as uh, also officials in the Justice Department, who thought the best route was to charge him with crimes. That's the voice of Kevin Gustola. He is managing editor of Shatterproof and has really been on the Assange beat from the very beginning, doing some wonderful reporting on that. Uh, also joining us is Rick Sterling. He's a, uh, a Bay Area activist, uh, reporter, human rights activist, as I said. He's working on a campaign to call attention to Assange to free uh, Julian Assange. Uh, Rick Sterling, welcome to Flashpoints. Uh, what what part of this story got your attention immediately? Uh, and I don't assume you were surprised 
Mm-hmm. No, I, I'm actually not surprised. This is, uh, you know, quite predictable. Uh, the really sad thing is that apart from the sensational story, or uh, while this is, uh, while this was going on, uh, right now Julian Assange is in maximum security prison. He's been convicted of no crime. He was effectively imprisoned in the Ecuador embassy for uh, for seven years. He's now been in Belmarsh maximum security prison for two full years. Seven months ago, he, at his hearing, he won his hearing, uh, uh, and the judge ruled that he should not be extradited to the U.S. to the U.S. And yet, he's still there. Now, in in some weeks from now, they're going to the appeal of the U.S. is is going to come to a head. Uh, and they'll reach their decision whether or not the appeal of the U.S. is uh, is uh, agreed with, uh, or whether it's going to be rejected. And the original judge decision that he should be released uh, goes ahead. But right now, this uh, this man, this young man, he just turned fifty, um, is uh, is suffering a slow death. So you know the 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 story is sensational. There's some. Falsehoods that that are slipped in there, no, namely that both Snowden and Assange have some kind of association with Russia. Snowden is in Moscow, but he did not go to Moscow intending to stay. He's only in Moscow or in Russia because it was when he was on route to another destination that the U.S. withdrew his passport so that he couldn't go anywhere else. He spent weeks at the airport in Moscow. Uh, trying to find some other way to to uh, to to go ahead to another country. Uh, the same thing regarding uh, Assange. There's there's absolutely no association with Russia, but this, of course, is part of the narrative that's been spun out to to uh, to smear uh, to smear Assange. Um, I, again, you know, people will recall the smearing went, and and there were. Uh, he was accused of of rape. Uh, it turned out that those cha- charges were fraudulent, and ultimately, after years and years, Sweden just quietly dropped the charges because there was no evidence. And actually, it was Niels Melzer, who was a, a United Nations expert, who uh, investigated the story, and, and he had admitted that he had been influenced by the smear campaign, and that when he looked into it, he was astounded that Julian Assange had never been allowed to defend himself in court. He had been smeared and attacked, and and it goes on. Right now, there is serious concern for his mental and physical health. He's in a maximum security prison, as I, as I just said. I went there in January of 2020. There are demonstrations every week uh, in, front of the, in front of the prison. Uh, his lawyer cannot, uh, his lawyer has very limited access to him. Uh, at that time, before the hearing, his lawyer had only been able to talk to him a, a couple of hours in the previous 30 days. This is just uh, leading up to the uh, to the uh, first hearing. So the, it's a slow death right now that's underway. 
Let, let me let me just jump in here. That's the voice of Rick Sterling. He's a Bay Area journalist, activist. He's working with a committee uh, to free Julian Assange, as people are all over the country, all over the world. Also joining us is one of my favorite journalists uh, in dealing with this incredibly important story, Kevin Gostola. Uh, we're glad to have him. He's managing editor of Shatterproof. And I, I want to talk to you, uh, Kevin, about, you know, it's not only the content of uh, uh, the way in which uh, Assange made important documents available. It's the structure that he offered journalists and whistleblowers. Many famous journalists uh, used uh, his, uh, his information in the context of the way in which he gave protection to those who were uh, making available these extraordinary revelations, and that also uh, won Julian Assange the the greatest disdain. Wouldn't you say that he was actually a pretty good publisher at protecting his sources? Yeah, WikiLeaks has always valued source protection. It's been a priority, and uh, we don't have time for all of the specific details, but there's statements from journalists that worked with Julian Assange who put out statements in defense for his extradition hearing, and they describe the process in which they took care of security, they had encryption, they went over the files meticulously to make sure that the information that they were releasing was going to be handled in ways that would not impact people who might be vulnerable, and that they took a lot of care. Um, maybe in some cases they spent more time and had more care with those documents than some of your average media organizations. Um, so it says in this article that, you know, to this issue of source protection, it says in this article that because WikiLeaks helped Edward Snowden flee Hong Kong, that changed the calculation for the Obama administration to uh, re-up the targeting of WikiLeaks and go back to total surveillance. And then as we got to the Clinton campaign emails, then there was even more reason for them to let the CIA do whatever they wanted because they believed that Julian Assange was no longer a journalist. Uh, but that you're raising an important point. You know, they created this platform and uh, journalists have um, imitated it. Uh, there's a lot of copycats out there. There's also a lot of people who took it and tried to perfect it, make it even better. Uh, we heard about this during the ex extradition hearing. A lot of these organizations that attack Julian Assange have something called Secure Drop, which are submissions systems that allow for leaks to be brought, uh, uh, passed on to their reporters anonymously in order to protect their identities. And then they turn those into stories. And, and I wanted to ask you, Kevin, in just in terms of the game changers, like stories and information releases, in terms of war and peace, wouldn't you say the the release of the what's called the collateral murders in which uh, you see that U.S. Uh, helicopter pilots are gleefully gunning down journalists and essentially killing a family and getting permission to do it 
from headquarters. Wouldn't you say that was one of the game changers of um, WikiLeaks? Oh, absolutely. Because those Reuters employees, the people there, didn't know what happened to their colleagues because the Pentagon refused to release the video footage and show them what had unfolded. And so it's only through Chelsea Manning and then WikiLeaks publishing Chelsea Manning's disclosures that they get that truth. I'd say the full picture of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars that we have, those hundreds of thousands of documents, you know, we uncovered, they uncovered, WikiLeaks and Chelsea uncovered 15,000 civilian deaths that were previously unknown. Um, And obviously that death toll is probably higher than what they're able to track just because it's difficult to do that kind of work. But 15,000 people not known before now known that they were killed in the Iraq war because of WikiLeaks can't understate the importance of the work that they were doing, which is really at the core of this political prosecution. Amazing. That was real journalists. I want to uh, give you a final say, Rick. You're, again, you're organizing with the group of Bay Area activists uh, in support of freeing Julian Assange. Uh, I'm sure many people are interested in what you're doing and how you're doing it. Can they get in touch with you, the group? I know you're working with Jeff Mackler and others. Yes, yes. Uh, well, uh, Kevin hit the nail on the head then when he referred to it as a political prosecution. This is the political prosecution of our generation. Like the Julian and Ethel Rosenberg was in a past generation, this is the uh, political witch hunt trial of of our generation. Julian Assange is not even American. He's never been to the United States, and yet the U.S. is going after him for publishing true information. The Afghan war logs, the Iraq war logs, exposed uh, corruption in... in, uh, 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 in Kenya, in Ivory Coast, in Iceland, he d- and in, in Russia, he did uh, many exposés uh, uh, beyond what what we've heard the most about, and they've all been proven to be entirely accurate. Uh, so this is this is a political prosecution of a journalist and a publisher. Uh, so the importance of that. There's a good movie out I want to mention. I suggest to people to look at it. It's only 38 minutes long. It's a 2020 uh, video, The War on Journalism, the case of Julian Assange. Uh, In three weeks, we're going to be having a rally for Julian Assange uh, just days before uh, the the hearing uh, is uh, comes to a a, they have the decision of the hearing takes place in London. Uh, the uh, the action is going to be on uh, at, at Sproul Plaza for obvious reasons on Saturday, October 23rd in the afternoon. People can uh, there'll be lots of publicity about the event over the coming weeks. Uh, people are welcome to to email me if you like. My name is Rick Sterling. It's not hard to find my email address. I you know that's usually included in articles I write. But uh, I encourage everybody to come out this. Case cannot be the importance of this case cannot be overstated. So uh, uh, inform yourselves and come on out. We need uh, we need to have a really good showing at Sproul Plaza on Saturday, October twenty third. All right, thank you for that. And uh, just uh, to come back uh, with you, uh, Kevin, to conclude, do you think the release of these revelations about 
uh, Pompeo and the serious consideration of assassination, all this stuff. Do you think that will help support Assange being freed, or will that make life worse, uh, do you think, for him? Well, one thing this could do for the Assange legal team is the district court judge, Vanessa Beretzer, actually put in her decision that she did not believe Julian was charged with crimes. That is, that he was indicted. She did not believe that happened because of the hostility of U.S. intelligence agents, particularly at the CIA. And we now see that there's no way you could make that claim with a straight face based on the evidence put forward in this report. And on top of that now, they're going to go before the High Court of Justice in a little less than a month, about exactly a month, and they're going to say that uh, the U.S. is going to claim that they're going to treat Julian Assange humanely on U.S. soil. After everything we've read about how the CIA was plotting to kidnap and assassinate him, I just don't think you can believe that if you're a judge on the High Court of Justice. So we'll see. I would like to think that it could be of some benefit, but of course, of course, we recognize that it just depends on how much the system of justice has eroded in the United Kingdom. All right. Uh, thank you, Kevin Costola. Thank you, Rick Sterling. Thanks to both of you. Very enlightening segment about a uh, really uh, a frontline segment about free speech and whether journalism and journalists are going to be able to continue to do what we need to do. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, our own Miguel Gabriel Molina was up north, uh, where the farm workers were, uh, uh, I guess, paying a visit. Uh, United Farm Workers to uh, the French Laundry. Uh, that's uh, Newsom's favorite, most expensive restaurant in California, not far from his own vineyard. Farm workers were there. They're not happy with uh, what the governor's been up to lately. Uh, Miguel uh, Gavilan Molina caught up with them, and uh, let's listen to this. This is Miguel Gavilan Molina reporting for Flashpoints. Today, it is Saturday morning, or more like Saturday midday. We're gathered here in Yountonville in Napa County, across the street from the French Laundry, one of the most expensive, luxury, exquisite restaurants in the United States located here in the Napa Valley. Uh, I'm here joining in solidarity uh, with the effort of the United Farm Workers who have come here to voice their concerns and to protest on some of the recent positions uh, that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom has taken, in particularly uh, one that affects farm workers and their ability to organize. Uh, I'm here today with one of the... uh, main organizers and assistants to the uh, president, uh, Teresa Romero, and that is uh, Heriberto. Heriberto, uh, if you could just introduce yourself and let us know 
uh, your your title and uh, what why are you here today? No, my name is Eddieberto Fernandez. I'm with the United Farm Workers Foundation. I'm an organizer. You know, we're out here in Napa gathering with supporters and farm workers who have sacrificed a day of work to come and protest uh, this unexcusable action that Governor Newsom has taken to vote against their right to vote at, in a union election the same way that you and I can vote to defeat him, you know, defeat the recall, vote for him as governor. You know, currently farm workers are required to vote for unions, for their union on company property. And as you can imagine, that creates a whole set of issues for farm workers, intimidation, retaliation. And so what we're trying to do is make it easier for farm workers so that they can exercise their right to join a union, form a union. And by that, we mean giving the farm worker the right to receive a ballot at home, fill it out in the privacy and the comfort of their home and mail it out just like you and I have that same right for political elections. Now, Governor Newsom just defeated a recall. And the same choices, the voting choices that citizens have to cast their ballot from the comfort of their home, that's how, he, that's how he was able to defeat the recall. But the irony is that he is not giving farm workers that same opportunity, those same choices, those same democratic rights. And so we're out here at French Laundry because in the midst of the height of the pandemic, he was telling the, the state, you know, uh, shelter in place, don't eat outside. You know, don't go out. But yet he was doing that. So that was, you know, strike one at his hypocrisy. Now, this is strike two at his hypocrisy because what worked for him for his recall election does not work for farm workers in his eyes. So we want him to step it up, you know, support farm workers' rights to organize, make it easier for farm workers to join unions and, uh, you know, uh, improve their working conditions. Really, that's what it comes down to, helping farm workers improve their working conditions. You know, Heriberto, it's such irony and massive contradiction within the Democratic Party. Uh, here we have, let's go back a little bit, maybe 30, 40 years ago, when uh, uh, Governor Jerry Brown was running the state. And he supported farm workers' efforts. He actually was very uh, uh, active in formulating and putting together the Farm uh, Farm Labor Relations Board, which would give oversight and a body to where farm workers could complain uh, and to assist in the farm workers' efforts to organize workers. So that was Jerry Brown way back then, mm -hmm. a Democratic governor. Now, here we are in the future with another Democratic governor, who apparently passes himself up as being progressive, but it looks like he's more liberal than progressive because, uh, you know, he's taken a stand that's betrayed uh, the farm workers. And after so many years and decades on having that ability and support to go in to organize, that has been taken away by this governor, uh, Gavin Newsom. So, uh, you know, there's a re-election campaign coming up next year, and it's going to be interesting to see Uh, how the farm workers support that effort. Right, right. And you know what? Uh, we, you and I, Miguel, have known for many years how essential farm workers have been to the world and to the country. But it's even more apparent now because of all that we've lived through during the pandemic. Uh, people are starting to realize how essential farm workers are to making sure that food arrives at their dinner table every single night. Uh, you know, we have had the luxury of having food because farm workers went out and sacrificed not only during the middle of the pandemic, 
but also during wildfires, during high heat temperatures, dying literally on the, in the field to feed America, feed Gavin Newsom and feed the rest of the world. And so we're here to make sure that people realize that, you know, this is a real betrayal to farm workers. And it's a sorry, sorry excuse for uh, a decision that he made uh, on this bill. That was the voice of one of the organizers for the United Farm Workers, Heriberto Fernandez, who uh, works with the UFW Foundation. Thank you so much, Heriberto. And we will continue this conversation. Si se puede. Si se puede. And thank you, Miguel Gavila Molina. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We are going to break. Some of you are going to hear from a documentary, What is Democracy? And some of you are going to hear from Miguel and I. We'll be right back. Let's begin with democracy, because I personally even wrestled a bit with making this the theme of the film. Like, but I couldn't, I kept returning to democracy. It's great. Um, right? So great. Great. So you're, you're <laughs> almost a metaphor for our problem, which right. is, on the one hand, democracy is this totally fluid and stretchable notion today. It can be appropriated by anybody for anything. It has been appropriated for terrible purposes, for imperialism, for colonial conquest, for um, smashing unions, for undoing affirmative action. All kinds of things happen in the name of democracy that you might object to, that I might object to. And it has many possible forms, but then we think, okay, so just let's get away from it. Let's have something else. Let's, let's go to a different form for understanding justice or for centering our own projects of freedom, equality, emancipation, just living, inclusion, and so forth, sustainability. And we keep coming back to it. And I think we keep coming back to it for a simple reason. It captures the idea of people governing themselves rather than being governed by something else. And the etymology of the term demoskratia simply gives you that in a, in a nutshell. It's the people rule. And the alternative is we are ruled by a part. We are ruled by an aristocracy. We are ruled by a tyrant. We are ruled by an oligarchy. We are ruled by a technocracy. We're ruled by something other than ourselves. And what we see today, I think, is a strong temptation to just turn the whole business of governing over to technocrats, not just to corporations, not just to the wealthy, but to essentially human versions of algorithms mm -hmm. <laughs> um, or algorithms themselves, as opposed to the interested, the passionate, the political, let alone the popular. And the idea is, you know, there are just a few who really know, put them together in a room and let them run the world. Yeah. I find that terrifying. <laughs> I think it is terrifying because it, it imagines that it has no political interests, but in fact it's totally shaped by a world that is now itself largely governed by finance. And so it has tremendous political interests. And it's also not democratic because it's not self-rule. It's the rule by profit and loss, by external metrics. Absolutely. It's not choosing and deliberating about who we want to be, what kind of people we want to be, what we want to become, how we want to conduct ourselves. It's simply living accord according to what you've just described, these very narrow norms of what is to be done, which is what enhances value, what depreciates value, what brand might succeed, what brand will fail you. It's a very narrow universe of thought 
and of conduct. And so you're absolutely right. It doesn't have self-governance in it, either in the individual or in the collective sense. In the 13th century, in Siena and surrounding areas, a banking system emerged. So what this town represents is really the beginning. It's the, the first elements of a capitalist society. In 1287, there was a revolt in Siena. They gave power to an oligarchy of merchants and bankers. This is the room where they used to meet. And then, around 1330, they commissioned uh, the painting of this room. And what we're looking at is the allegory of good government and bad government. You know, good government on the central wall, and on the right side, we have the effects of good government. And on the left side, we have the effects of bad governments. This painting is supposed to celebrate their government and to, you know, legitimize it as a just government, as a government that is capable of guaranteeing the, the prosperity of the town and is a government that takes into account the interest of all. Mm -hmm. That's, of course, is the claim. So it's propaganda yeah. for the oligarchs. Th that's their image of themselves. The central character is a very patriarchal figure. He represents the common good, and the good government sits among virtues. Peace, we have fortitude, we have justice. Temperance must know the limit, right? So for example, you're not supposed to flaunt your wealth because you can provoke here envy, and envy generates discord. And here's tyranny, right? Tyranny is the concentration of power. Tyranny is privilege, is abuse, is injustice. Even in this painting from so long ago, can we see modern day tyranny? Yes, there's a connection. It's the greed, the you know, absence of a awareness and acceptance of a limit, yeah? It's the beginning of a long historical process where the rule of money has extended itself to every corner of the world. And the question is, who rules? Who rules? Well, 
if we see democracy as the rule of the people, uh, certainly it's not the rule of the people. We have deified the market. As if it is some entity unto itself. We have given up power, basically, as societies, as citizens. We have undermined our own democracy by saying, we give the power to who? To the markets. When I was elected in 2009, I had to deal with a crisis where we had a deficit of 16%, a debt that had doubled. So I had a choice. Either we go bankrupt or we decide to ask for loans from our partners in the European Union and the IMF. And we have uh, very important challenges ahead of us. Amongst them, of course, are the decisions we are making in Greece. Uh, we are committed to make the major changes. But in a small country like Greece, I mean, we don't have that power to be able to withstand these huge um, um, forces. The narrative has been that Greeks have been living beyond their means, that they have overspended public money, and now it's time to pay the bill. This is a lie. The creditors pretend to lend money to Greece, but this money never comes to the Greek state. Actually, 92% of the money supposedly given to Greece is going back to the creditors. They even like to call this a bailout program, pretending that they save the Greek society while they're really saving themselves and their banks. Can you hear me well? Yeah. One thing we've been wanting to talk to people about is how the economic crisis is affecting your generation. I'm 23, so from 2008, where the global economic crisis started, I was 16. For me, all the most important stuff was the occupation of the squares in 2011. Every day there was a public assembly. And it was for me a great experiment on direct democracy. People from all kinds of different backgrounds came and they discussed and they self-organized in, in, in very impressive numbers. Everyone thought that there was time for change. And Syriza was a political result of that. We thought that a party that owed its loyalty to the people would be an instrument to voice the interests of the people. And we thought that after all these years of, of fighting, that we achieved that in a way. And all we were, all we were so naive. The referendum was a historical moment for the Greek people. The people were given a say for their lives for their dignity, for their future, for their destiny.
the people were far more courageous than their leadership. And they, by a 62% vote, said no to the blackmails addressed to them. This was a sovereign democratic decision that nobody had the right to violate. <laughs> and yet, eight days later, the country's creditors and the country's government reached a so-called agreement to implement the very measures that had been rejected by the people. What happened was a betrayal. It's very important for societies to realize that it's time to fight against this kind of new tyranny, which is attacking the people and democracy through economic and banking means. It's been a struggle to like live here in Denmark and also know how many things are going on back home and how much people are suffering and if I would be needed there to help. All of my classmates are leaving. No one, almost no one is, is staying. We need to like have a chance of a, a decent life. It's very difficult for me to leave Greece. And, that, and that's, I think, a big like ethical dilemma for me, that if not us, then who will, will change the thing? Are you crying? Yes, of course I'm crying. I hope politically that one day I will be able to come to come back, that the political situation will will better and uh, the European situation will better, so I will be able to come back and help help the place that I know so much about and I I love so much about and I have pained so much for. These are the men of power in the town. Now, all these men are men of money, are men of property. They are the ones who inhabit those beautiful houses with the big towers. You try to build your tower as tall as possible as a manifestation of your prosperity and your power. In a sense, the tower was really the an expression, yeah, a, phallic, a phallic symbol of power. Exactly. This is a moment in which power is very physically accessible. It's still embodied in local structures that are very accessible you know, to the citizen. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's possible to imagine to overthrow it. Those exploiters or those men of power are within the reach. They are within the wall of the city. You can, you can think of overthrowing. You can organize yourself to overthrow them. This is something that has changed immensely. Today, you don't even see money. The physicality of money is beginning to disappear. You know, when people had the bag of coins, <laughs> they carried the bag of coin, and you know, but today money is running around the globe at the speed of light. Those seeds of capitalism 
that we see here has now fully blossomed. And so it has become much more difficult, in fact, to think of a democratization that uh, starts from the local level. Because the global today is so much enmeshed into the local. Yeah, I love this idea too of um, right, power is less visible today. If we can't identify it, yes. we also have a harder time resisting exactly. it. Power appears as a, an abstract system. For me, this project began with the question, what is democracy? And I quickly realized it's not something that's ever actualized, but always something that is in motion, a kind of ideal we're reaching toward. But in practice, everywhere you look, democracy is in trouble. Progress can go into reverse, and terrible things have happened in the name of democracy. Yes, it's been so abused and so misapplied, you know, compared to its original meaning, which means the power of the people, the government of the people. But so many have fought for the realization of a true democracy, that in a way it's important not to uh, abandon the world. Right, and we also need to think hard about what that word even means. Yes. Exactly. Democracy does this remarkable thing by inviting all of us to come together and ask the Socratic question, how should we live? And yet the most prominent ancient philosophers were profoundly skeptical of our ability to rule ourselves, right? The fundamental question, I think, motivating the whole of ancient philosophy is the question of happiness. What is it that makes a life worth living, okay? A good life. In Plato and Aristotle, the ground on which the answer to this question is built is a city. A good life is one guaranteed by a good city. Bad life is one people lead in a bad city. Now, what makes a good city good, and this is something that both Plato and Aristotle will say, is justice. A good city is a just city. But even before they try to define what justice is, I think they will both hold that justice is good 
because it ensures the unity of the city. For Plato, the basic factors which endanger the unity of the city are wealth and its counterpart, poverty. Plato says in the Republic, in Book 8, that rich people want to become richer. This is the desire that motivates them. So in becoming richer, they will take from others. They will put the others in a situation of debt and that you will make the others increasingly poorer. So this will break the city into two cities. We'll have the city of the rich and the city of the poor. And one part of the city will stand against the other part of the city. And this will initiate civil war. What poor people will do eventually, they will follow any demagogue that will promise them to overthrow the rich. And this, for Plato, will eventually and inevitably lead to tyranny. He says that, you know, the passage is from democracy to tyranny because of that. This is why, in the Republic, he wants the rulers to be absolutely indigent, having no property whatsoever, because the rulers will rule the city not because of ambition or love of money or love of honors, but because the city has brought them up. So they will have a moral and political obligation towards the city. So you see, this might be something that would be relevant for us today because we live in a shattered, dismembered society. And this society has been dismembered because of extreme economical inequality. And what we're, what we're faced with is the need to remember this dismembered society. political class, or whether we are ruled by the people. We're going to be ruled by the people, folks. Trump was probably the legal hand grenade that we could have thrown, that we thrown into the system. People voted for Trump for different reasons. Same people who voted for Obama in the Rust Belt voted for Trump. Believe it, and that, that's how it is. The Democratic Party left the poor, blue-collar, working man behind. You can't just forget about poor white people. You have to look out for them. Trump, like in Detroit, when he stood in front of the Ford Corporation and said, if you take these jobs to Mexico, I'm gonna put a tariff on it. That appealed. We're Americans and Donald Trump said, I'm gonna put Americans first. You know, people have different opinions of immigration laws. If we don't have a border, we don't have a nation. <laughs> if we don't have strong borders and it affects our economy, Americans do suffer. If America is better, 
then we can have more immigrants come in and we can, you know, they can make their lives better. It's not that we want to keep everyone out and that we don't want them to have opportunity. It's that we, we need to be able to be successful ourselves. But when I hear people chanting build a wall, I don't hear a lot of welcoming to... Illegal immigrants. Mm -hmm. So democracy, what does it mean to you? When I think about something, the word that inspires me, it's not democracy. It's, you know, the phrase the American dream and that ability to climb. Of course, Plato was writing at a time that was very different from ours, but his challenge still holds. Yeah, it's not that different, actually. I mean, you tell me when we... Yeah, when keep we going. No. Yeah. yeah, no, the fact that the founding texts of the Western philosophical tradition, Plato's Republic, provides the most powerful indictment of not just uh, democratic practices, but the possibility of democracy. He argues that every democratic experiment, every experiment in which those Sly Stone called everyday people attempt to govern themselves will result in tyranny because there's too much unruly passion and pervasive ignorance among the demos, among everyday people. See, I come from a people, a black people, who have suffered in forms of being terrorized, traumatized, and stigmatized in the name of majority rule. So democracy cannot be simply majority rule. If it was majority rule, black folk could easily have remained enslaved to Jim Crow. It was not democratic processes. Abraham Lincoln's uh, Emancipation Proclamation was dictatorial, it was not democratic. See, Brown v. Board in 1954 for school integration came from a counter-majoritarian institution called the Supreme Court didn't come from the majority. If the majority of Americans were to vote in 1954 for school integration, it never would pass. What's fascinating about my own tradition, Martin Luther King Jr. and Fannie Lou Hamer and the others, the radical Democrats coming from the chocolate side of town, coming from beneath American democracy, coming from the enslaved and the Jim Crow and the Jane Crow, is that we still held on to notions of democracy but they were democratic critiques of the truncated democratic practices in America. So we're still wrestling with Plato's challenge. Plato's challenge will never go away, will never go away, because the fascist possibilities of any, any democratic experiment are always there. I don't care which part of the world you're talking about. During slavery, you, you had perfect classism there. You had black folks who were slaves. Then you had the overseers who were white, blue-collar folks. And then you had the plantation owners. The thing there was the plantation owners kept the fear among the overseers that black folks were gonna take over. So the overseers did their worst on the black folks to keep them from coming in and taking their jobs, and the white folks sitting up at the top enjoying it all without any discomfort at all. That's, that's I mean, the, the, the analogy to me is there. You got rich white folks sitting up there, middle class folks sitting here. You got, let me back up, I, I don't mean to be racist in any way. You got rich folks sitting up there, you got middle class folks sitting there, and you got 
the rest of us sitting down here. And those in the middle are told by those at the top, you better watch those at the bottom because they're coming after you, and we sitting up there making all the money. Martin had always told me, he said, Mickey, we talk about economics, we talk about civil rights, we talk about, he said, but you know, none of this can be done unless we have somebody in the seats of power where the laws are made. He said, politics is the way of life. We need economic power, he said, more desperately than any other group in American society. But in order to get that, we've got to become involved politically. He said, you do a good job. I said, Martin, you're crazy. When I first got elected, we were coming out of that period of Jim Crow when you had literacy laws involved, you had poll taxes involved, you had everything involved to keep black folks from voting. When I came into office, things were beginning to improve. And one of the things I took on was voting rights. And then we started opening up same-day registration, out-of-precinct voting, early voting, 16, 17-year-old registration, all of these things, uh, here again, politics played a role in it. And, and, and my name was on most of all of that stuff that was passed during that. Now it's being taken away. This was the first election without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. From the White House to the Republican legislature, they keep telling the lie about voter fraud and not the truth about voter suppression. Since 2010, we've had 22 states that have passed voter suppression laws where you've had the highest turnout of black and brown people. And on election day, there were 868 fewer polling places in states with histories of discrimination. And there were 158 less voting sites in the black communities in North Carolina. When people will cheat like that, standing down is not an option. That wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.